Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Donald Trump facing off against Johnny Law in multiple courtrooms today. The lead starts right now. In Florida, documents are out. A judge decides the public will get to see new documents related to the FBI's unprecedented search of the former president's Mar-a-Lago property. In New York, Trump's longtime CFO, Alan Weisselberg, pleads guilty to his role in a long-running tax scheme. How much might Weisselberg reveal next about the Trump family business as he tries to avoid even more jail time at the notorious Rikers Island? And also today, Walmart, Walgreens, and CVS all ordered to pay up in a multi-million dollar opioid settlement. Where will all that money go? As prosecutors claim that the big pharmacy chains helped fuel a silent epidemic that left so many Americans hooked and hundreds of thousands dead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our politics lead. Major developments when it comes to learning more details behind the Mar-a-Lago raid. This afternoon, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart ruled that he will unseal additional documents surrounding the search, and he left the door open to releasing parts of the actual affidavit, which lays out in detail why the Justice Department felt the need to take the unprecedented step of searching the home of a former president. The DOJ is against revealing that affidavit. They say it would provide a roadmap for their criminal investigation to possible future defendants. And they say it could chill future cooperation by witnesses. But Judge Reinhardt appeared skeptical that the entire document needs to be kept secret. CNN's Caitlin Palance is outside the courthouse in West Palm Beach, Florida. And Caitlin, you just got a hold of the documents that the judge unsealed today. Tell us what they say. Well, there are four new documents in this court record backing up this search warrant that are now public based on the judge's ruling. We did have the Justice Department saying they were okay with releasing these. They were largely procedural documents that would exist in a court record like this, keeping things under seal, just setting up the process for that search warrant and that affidavit. But what's in them is we hang on to every single word when we look at court documents, and there are words that fill out just a little bit more about what's going on in this investigation. In one uh, document, the Justice Department writes that secrecy is needed here, so they're telling why they want this to be under seal. They say it's because the integrity of the ongoing investigation might be compromised and evidence might be destroyed. That's why that search could not be announced in advance, because evidence might be destroyed. That was a fear of the federal government. The other thing they're saying here is is a little bit more about exactly which parts of the criminal statutes they are investigating. So there were three things we learned before under investigation here. Espionage Act, obstruction of justice, criminal uh, 
mishandling of records. Here, they're spelling out that this is the willful retention of national defense information that is something being investigated here, that they had probable cause to go in and seize that evidence of. Uh, and also uh, that there is the concealment or removal of government records under investigation and, of course, obstruction as well. So those are the three things. It's just a little bit more information than we had before about this investigation. Yeah, it's fascinating. The basis for the search is, quote, evidence of a crime and also, quote, contraband fruits of crime or other items illegally possessed in these new documents. Caitlin, the judge also left the door open to releasing parts of the actual affidavit. What happens next in that process? Right. Well, the affidavit really is the substantive thing in this case that would explain a lot about this investigation. And the judge does appear to be leaning toward more transparency here. Uh, Media organizations were in court arguing, you know, let the government make some redactions. That is okay. But the judge should be able to step in as a, a, a... person who can represent the public, who can represent the media, and determine whether or not every single word there needs to be blacked out. So over the next week, the Justice Department is going to make proposals about exactly what they want to redact in that affidavit. They say it is detailed, it's relatively lengthy, it talks about witness interviews they've already done, it's talked about the grand jury, investigative techniques, investigative steps, lots of detail there about a very significant ongoing criminal investigation that they want to keep contact. They don't want to disrupt as their process moves forward. Uh, So we're just going to have to see what the judge does. But the Justice Department has to come back next week, make a little bit more arguments there. So the Justice Department making it clear they don't want the affidavit uh, released in any way. Uh, But, Caitlin, I was surprised to to learn this. Trump's team was given the chance to weigh in on whether whether or not they wanted the affidavit released or completely blocked. And they chose not to weigh in at all. Exactly. I mean, this morning they had the opportunity to file by 9 a.m. an argument laying out exactly which side they were on. They were not asked specifically to respond, but they had that ability just like any member of the public or the media would be able to. They did not file a single thing. And then Trump did have a lawyer here at court. She sat in the courtroom, Christina Bob. She was here. There were many members of the media, uh, myself included, approaching her, asking her what position Trump would be taking. Uh, She was really declining comment, and then she did not stand up in court when given the opportunity, uh, not by the judge, but generally by the court. If she wanted to sit and say something she could have, she did not do that. Interesting. Caitlin Palance, thank you so much for that reporting. Now to new exclusive CNN reporting. In the days after the Mar-a-Lago raid, Trump claimed, among other things, that there could not be any classified materials at his home because he had a standing order to declassify any documents that he took from the Oval Office to the White House residence. But now, Former Trump administration officials say that claim is ludicrous and ridiculous and complete fiction. CNN's Jamie Gangel is breaking this story for us now. Jamie, tell us who you talked to and what else they said about Trump's claim. It wasn't just a couple of people, Jake. We reached out to 18 former, very senior Trump officials, White House, uh, intelligence community, NSA, Justice Department, even his former chiefs of staff. Many of these people either would have been involved about in the process or would have been aware of the process. And each and every one, all 18, dismissed the notion that there was any standing order for a sweeping declassification. Some of them even laughed at it. And this doesn't happen too often. They even went on the record. So let's start with former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, who said 
Nothing approaching an order that foolish was ever given, and I can't imagine anyone that worked at the White House after me that would have simply shrugged their shoulders and allowed that order to go forward without dying in the ditch trying to stop it. Another chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, acting chief of staff, he flatly dismissed the idea and told me, quote, not aware of a general standing order when he was chief. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton called it, quote, a complete fiction. And Jake, as they say, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Olivia Troy, former Homeland Security official to Mike Pence, called it ludicrous. Another former very senior intelligence official laughed and said it's ridiculous. And a very, very senior Trump administration official called it, quote, bullshit. And actually, there were a couple a couple of other words who, who said that more officials who called it BS. So the Jamie, obviously, um, any president, including right. Donald Trump, has broad powers to declassify materials when he's in office. Um, but my impression of it is that you have to create a record of it. Uh, it. You can't just like wave your hands and say this is declassified. Has anyone seen or found any record of this? No, not yet. As one very senior White House official said to me, show me his signature. Where is the proof? And, and to your point, it has to be memorialized and there is a process. It's frequently a complicated process that requires multiple agencies. Right, they might push back. They might say, please, please don't do this, Mr. President. Absolutely. The idea that Donald Trump could have this idea in his head or wave a magic wand is simply not the way it works. Yeah, um, Another question uh, I have, obviously, these officials also say the top national security officials in the administration um, would have had a major issue if Donald Trump, President Trump, had ever uh, issued such an order. They wouldn't have just gone along with it. Absolutely. Look, I was told by several people that people would have resigned over this at the top level, that it was, quote, reckless to even suggest such a standing offer. As to why Trump is saying this now, uh, almost everyone I spoke to said it is a transparent attempt to try to come up with some legal justification for why he took these papers to Mar-a-Lago. All right, Jamie Gengel, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss is Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. He's the ranking Republican on the House Intelligence uh, Committee. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. So, let me start with Thank what, uh, with how Caitlin started the show, reporting on these uh, newly unsealed documents, and also the judge suggesting that uh, he is does, he wants to uh, at least show some of the affidavit, uh, perhaps next week. What's your reaction to all this? Well, all around, this is a win. So, from the beginning, when we heard of the Marlargo raid, uh, I called for the uh, warrant to be released. Uh, and for the affidavits, and for these to be, to the extent that they're redacted, uh, given to the Intelligence Committee. We're still waiting for that. And the show us the goods. The warrant and the affidavit will tell us what they said that they were going to go find. And then, of course, in the Intelligence Committee, we have full classification uh, clearance uh, to be able to see any of these documents. Show us what you went in for. Because what we have here is they have to meet a pretty high threshold to be able to justify that they use the most intrusive, um, unprecedented, as you called it, uh, invasion of a former president's home. What I have said and called for is 
you know, certainly this must rise to the level of an imminent national security threat that they're trying to secure that they would go into his house because they had many options, one of which is they could have gone to court and asked the court to enforce the subpoena that was prior issued, where they would have demanded that uh, the president, former president, deliver his materials and have the court even working with them determine what's in the materials and what they retain and what he retains. Of course, even that wasn't done to Hillary Clinton, as you know. But nonetheless, th this standard of a higher standard of an imminent national security threat, what's interesting, and especially was in your report, is the um, the brief, the motion that was filed by the court uh, to the court by the Department of Justice to try to stop the affidavit from being released doesn't even cite a national security threat. They only cite a criminal investigation. They don't say that these documents right. pose a national security threat. And what's interesting, Jake, is by now they've seen them, right? right? They have them. So you would have thought if this was a national security issue, it would be in this motion. Well, Congress, let me just ask you. I mean, the, this this document that's signed by the, the judge, the magistrate judge, says that the basis for the search is check evidence of a crime, check contraband fruits of crime or other items illegally possessed. It talks about uh, the search is related to violation of U.S. code having to do with willful retention of national defense information, concealment or removal of government records, obstruction of federal investigation, and elsewhere, in the motion to seal signed by the U.S. attorney, uh, Juan Gonzalez, it says the United States submits that there's good cause to conduct this because the integrity of the ongoing investigation might be compromised. Uh, to, this is to seal the motion, the search warrant and all accompanying documents and evidence might be destroyed. So I guess my question is, uh, I understand, look, no, everyone in this country uh, is innocent until proven guilty and nobody's been charged with anything. But but. Why do you not believe what this magistrate judge and this U.S. attorney are saying? Well, it's not a lack of belief. And remember, that's very boilerplate language. You can find that in any warrant. And those are certainly the keys that they're going to cite and turn. What you have here, though, is that they had other options. For the attorney general, on his, his own signature, he said he signed off on it to choose the most invasive, the most intrusive well, action. They tried to get the to documents the other before. Options. Wait but, a minute. But you, but but you know that they've been trying They stood in front for... of them in June. Yeah. No, wait a minute. They stood in front of them in June and said, lock them up. Then they came all the way back in August. They had an affidavit for, uh, they had a warrant for a weekend, and they didn't rush in over that weekend. So th there certainly is the question of what is the imminent threat here. But here's the, the point, Jake, and this is very important. You know, this is the, the President Biden's political rival. This is also President Trump was the man who derailed the attorney general's path to sit on the Supreme Court. There better be a very high standard for an unprecedented no former president's Wait, home has ever been raided. Why are you saying that the attorney the, the, general? Why are you saying Trump, Trump stopped Garland from becoming? You mean because he won? That's that's how he stopped Garland from becoming a U.S. Supreme well, Court? Well, he was also the one who had to withdraw his nomination and appoint someone else. I mean, he didn't appoint him. Um, so, yes, I mean, Garland certainly knows that he's not on the Supreme well, Court because of but you're Donald Trump. You're That's really personal. You're insinuating that. that I'm not insinuating. Bi I'm straight up saying it. You're, OK, you're saying that Biden and Garland are doing this out of a political vendetta. Right. That's no, what, no. I'm saying that in order for them to have credibility, because they already have an unbelievable level of bias. This is President Biden's political rival, perhaps even his his uh, you know political opponent. Certainly his past political opponent. Well, you have no evidence and that Attorney Biden was Garland, involved in this in any way. We don't know because Attorney General Garland hasn't told us. It'd be an interesting question for you to ask Garland whether or not he did tell the White House. Because I've not seen him ask that question or answer well, it. Well, the White House has said, that, the White House has said that they, they had no idea. And just empirically looking back on it, this all happened at a time when President Biden had a bunch of legislative accomplishments. I, I doubt that he would have wanted 
uh, all, you know, the, the bills that he signed and a, and a decent week that he had uh, legislatively knocked off the front page uh, by the by this raid. But let me ask you something. You just heard. I can't from- you have any doubt, but it's a question that should be asked the attorney general. I, I, I don't doubt that for one second. You just heard Jamie Gangel's reporting and, and you've heard from John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney and, and uh, former uh, Marine General John Kelly and all these other individuals saying Donald Trump never had any standing order just to say any a classified document that I take to my residence is automatically declassified, even though that's what Donald Trump uh, is suggesting. And, and I certainly can't imagine you uh, as the ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee would ever think that any policy like that would be acceptable. No. Well, and I don't think that's what the president, the former president said. I think he said that while he was president, when they were unloading documents, he said the things that I'm taking are declassified. I don't really know what he said, but I know this, Jake. You weren't there and I wasn't there. And all the other people that you're interviewing weren't there either. And you can continue to interview people who were never there while Donald Trump was leaving the, the White House. And none of them are going to be able to answer this question. Now, I will agree with the report that you just said on the issue of whether or not this was declassified or not. That's a fact-based issue. You know, I'm a lawyer. He's going to have to prove it. The question's going to have to be, be asked. And there's going to have to be something more than, as you said, him just think it. But right. at the same time, you can ask people who were, had nothing to do with it, like you and I, and you're only going to get speculation. This is something that is obviously going to be a question that's going to have to be resolved. But the other question that has to be resolved is, do we have an abuse of discretion here by the attorney general to spend nine hours in mar Largo? And what was the basis of that that he said had to be the option to choose this as opposed to going to the court and saying, I have a subpoena, judge, order the former president to deliver these documents to us. And of course, he would be at that point subject to contempt of court. And they didn't do any of that, even though those documents sat there since June. And even though they got the warrant over the weekend, what was the imminent threat? It sounds to me to spend nine hours at the president's house. It it sounds to me quite a bit like the the idea that this was made public, that from where I sit, it looks as though Garland and the FBI and the Department of Justice were trying to handle this quietly. Uh, We learned confirmation of this FBI raid from Donald Trump, not from the FBI. They didn't wear FBI jackets. They came in. A lot of people at Mar-a-Lago thought it was just Secret Service. Uh, It sounds to me like they were trying to get these documents. I don't disagree with you at all uh, that it's important that the public find out the the impetus behind this. But before you go, I want to ask you a question, because a handful of your Republican colleagues, not you, but a handful of your Republican colleagues have called for a defunding of the FBI after the the Mar-a-Lago raid. And I want you to take a listen to what uh, former Vice President Mike Pence said yesterday. I also want to remind my fellow Republicans, we can hold the Attorney General accountable for the decision that he made without attacking rank-and-file law enforcement personnel at the FBI. Calls to defund the FBI are just as wrong as calls to defund the police. I I should note that this also comes as Donald Trump and his team leaked to friendly media uh, the full warrant that listed the names, unredacted, listed the names of the actual FBI agents. You're from Ohio. I don't need to tell you uh, the peril that this puts uh, individual FBI agents in. You had that MAGA lunatic uh, attack uh, the FBI headquarters there uh, in Ohio. Um, are you concerned at all about some of the rhetoric you've heard uh, from some of your Republican colleagues? Well, Jake, as you know, I have called the, the, the statements to defund the FBI outrageous. And in all the statements that where we have come together uh, as the Intelligence Committee demanding that this, these materials be released to us, we've started with 
Um, you know, we certainly support and believe and honor the men and women uh, who serve uh, in uh, the FBI. It's the leadership, it's the two individuals that have been appointed by this president, the FBI Director Ray, who serves at the pleasure of the president, and of course, Attorney General Garland, that have questions to answer, both the American public and to Congress and to our Intelligence Committee about their actions. And certainly we condemn any and, and all violence, and it's always disheartening. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking when, when people make statements like this, and, and it, um, it, you know, it certainly should be condemned. Yeah, I mean, just a note that Christopher Wray, the FBI director, was appointed by Donald Trump. But I take your point. Republican congressman. He, I, he serves at the pleasure of right. this president. Right. So he is an appointee of the current president because he's he stayed. Right. Now, he was originally appointed by Trump in the position. Absolutely, I agree. I think he's there because of President Biden. Yeah, we hear each other. Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, always good to see you. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Take care. In court in New York today, Alan Weiselberg pleading guilty to 15 felonies. Could future testimony from the former Trump Organization CFO implicate the former president? Plus, CNN inside Taliban territory, where Afghans once bragged about attacks on America and what people say one year after that chaotic withdrawal by the United States. And school mask requirements, even for the youngest students who are now eligible for a vaccine. They're, this hour, we're asking, why do these kids need to wear masks? In our politics lead, former Trump Organization CFO, the chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, today pleaded guilty in a 15-year tax fraud scheme that benefited both him and his employer, the Trump Organization. Weisselberg admitted to 15 counts of tax fraud, including failing to pay taxes on $1.7 million of personal income. As part of the deal, Weisselberg also agreed to testify against the Trump Organization, not the individual, but the organization, if that family business goes to trial for real estate tax fraud this fall. Let's bring in Renato Mariotti, who was a federal prosecutor, also with me, David Priest, who was a CIA intelligence officer, also the author of the book, The President's Book of Secrets. Uh, Renato, let me start with you. Weisselberg possibly testifying against the Trump organization. Is that significant? I think so, uh, because... Trump, the Trump Organization actually has the same constitutional rights that a person would have. They're going to have their own separate trial. Uh, and ultimately, I think the testimony of Weisselberg should bury and ensure a guilty sentence for the Trump Organization, given that he was the chief financial officer. So I think that's significant. David, the federal judge also signaled that he's willing to release a redacted version of the affidavit uh, that the FBI used to, to justify a search of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, this is uh, for the different case down in, in Florida. If that affidavit is released, what will you be looking for when you read it? What I'll be looking for is a whole lot of black rectangles, Jake, because <laughs> the judge is almost certainly not going to release the most sensitive information here. And frankly, the material a lot of people want to see, which are the, the details of exactly what is known or suspected that led to this the details of who is being investigated and why. This is still an active investigation. I don't think the judge is going to release most of that. So there's going to be a lot of words that are readable when this is released, but there's going to be a whole lot of nouns that are not visible because they're behind those redactions of black rectangles in the document. And Renato, the judge uh, also just unsealed some of the documents the FBI used uh, to justify their search of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, one of them is the motion to seal, to keep documents hidden. It reads in part, the United States submits 
that there is good cause because of the ongoing investigation might be compromised and evidence might be destroyed. What do you make of that? Well, they certainly certainly means that they presented some evidence of that uh, in this affidavit. I know the congressman a moment ago called it boilerplate. I ordinarily wouldn't disagree, but given the case that this is, the fact that this was the former president and that there was so much review, so many layers of review, I suspect uh, that there was more, that there was some evidence uh, that led the Justice Department to be concerned about that. David, uh, back to the the issue having to do with the Trump organization and, and Weiselberg. Uh, we have seen organizations uh, like the Sacklers organization, Purdue Pharma, face penalties, but individuals who ran the company uh, did not face any. Is that likely what we're going to see with the Trump organization if they're found guilty, the company will pay some sort of fine, but nobody who actually runs the company gets punished? It's hard to say. Um, One thing we don't know is exactly the level of cooperation. There's some reporting going out there about what's happening, but we don't know what exactly it will lead to. Will some information come out in related ways that points us to culpability in the individual sense? Right now, it seems to me the Trump organization side of this. And what are we tracking now, Renato? Four or five different investigations. The Trump organization one perhaps is the one least likely to go after Donald Trump personally. The Mar-a-Lago documents, certainly Fulton County, are definitely looking that way. But the Trump organization, I think it may be more limited in terms of who is actually fingered for this. Uh, And and Renato, you heard uh, Congressman Turner in the previous segment say Uh, If these secrets that were kept at Mar-a-Lago, if these documents were so important, why did it take the Justice Department so long to the point that they even took the weekend off uh, before going down there and and getting these documents? Uh, How do you explain? How do you explain what happened? Well, it seems to me, uh, Jake, that there was extraordinary deference that was given to the former president here. I mean, if reports are true, uh, then the Justice Department actually uh, provided a subpoena to the former president. The Justice Department actually had a meeting in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, if I had documents in my uh, home, I don't think I would have gotten a polite meeting or a request or a subpoena or anything like that. And I'm interested if the affidavit has some portions unsealed of whether or not the portions that are unsealed are going to reveal these conversations and potential uh, reasons why they were convincing the judge that this step was necessary. All right, Renato Mariotti and David Priest, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up, CNN is in Afghanistan, going beyond the capital of Kabul. What Afghans say now about the U.S. no longer being in their country, the incredibly brave reporting in heavy Taliban territory to bring you the story next. Stay with us. The mosque explosion that rocked Afghanistan's capital city of Kabul on Wednesday tops our world lead today. Police in Kabul say the blast killed at least 21 people and left dozens wounded. One witness saying the explosion was so intense, worshippers were thrown out of the mosque's windows. No one has claimed responsibility, but the violence follows a recent pattern by the terrorist group ISIS. It's obviously a setback for Taliban leadership after they touted security improvements that we should note are partly because the Taliban themselves are no longer attacking President Ghani's Afghan government, which no longer exists. Now, one year after the chaotic U.S. withdrawal, which allowed that Taliban takeover, CNN's Clarissa Ward traveled outside Kabul, where Afghans harbor a deep resentment of the United States for invading in 2001 and occupying ever since. There were no tears in the Tangi Valley when U.S. forces left Afghanistan. The landscape is awash with white flags. 
marking the graves of Taliban fighters killed in battle. Among them is the son of Nabi Mubarez. This is your son? He tells us he was killed during a U.S.-supported Afghan Special Forces night raid on the family home in 2019. Video of the aftermath shows the scale of the destruction. After a protracted gun battle, the house was leveled, killing a second son of Mubarez's as well as his niece and her daughter. There was a lot of blood spilled, a voice says off camera. The rebuilt living room is now a shrine to the dead. What was your reaction when American forces left a year ago? I said that peace has come to Afghanistan, he says. There will be no more mothers becoming widows, like our mothers and sisters who were widowed and our children killed. Across this rural Taliban stronghold, American forces were seen as invaders who brought death and destruction with their night raids and drone strikes. Peace has brought a chance to air long-held grievances. At the local market, were immediately surrounded. Every household had at least one fighter, this man tells us, and every house had people who were killed by the Americans and their drones, and we are proud of that. Sher Mohammed Hamas is treated like royalty here. His brother is believed to be responsible for downing a helicopter full of U.S. special forces. So he's taking me to the spot where he says his brother shot down a Chinook. It was August 6, 2011. Hamas says his brother was hiding behind the trees and shot the Chinook down with an RPG as it prepared to land by the river. 30 Americans were killed, the single greatest loss of American life in the entire Afghan war. There were a lot of celebrations, and not just here, he tells us. It was a big party. I'm sure you can understand that it's It's hard to hear that people were celebrating about the deaths of dozens of Americans. This was a heroic achievement because the people who were killed on this plane, they were the killers of Osama bin Laden, he says. And Sheikh Osama is someone who is the crown on the head of Muslims. So definitely the people were happy about this. Days later, the U.S. says it responded with a strike that killed Hamas's brother. Another white flag raised in a valley where martyrs were made and views hardened. Now, Jake, what is so striking is that the Tangy Valley is less than 50 miles from Kabul. So where many people here were absolutely devastated by the Taliban takeover, a two-hour drive away, people were celebrating in the streets. And I think one small part of that is that people in the Tangy Valley didn't get to see some of the benefits that were associated with the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, the billions of dollars that was pumped into development and infrastructure and and, and and resources all around, that really did not trickle down in any meaningful way to rural areas like the Tangy Valley. And that's a small part, I think, of why you see these attitudes, Jake. All right, Clarissa Warden Cobble for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, responses from some of the biggest names in retail, Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, after a judge ordered those companies to pay up in a multi-million dollar opioid settlement. Stay with us. 
The opioid crisis tops our money lead today. Three major pharmacy chains have been ordered to pay $650 million total in damages related to that crisis to two Ohio counties. A judge ruled that CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart abused their roles of trust and responsibility and, quote, fostered a black market for prescription opioids in those two counties. Over the next 15 years, the money will go to particularly hard-hit Lake and Trumbull counties and fund programs to reduce dependence on opioids. Let's bring in CNN's Gene Casares. Gene, we're hearing that all three pharmacies plan to appeal the ruling. What, what exactly are these pharmacy giants saying? Well, they believe it's just very unfair because they're saying we are not the manufacturers of opioids like Purdue Pharma. We are not the distributors like the major pharmaceutical companies. We're just the pharmacies. People bring in legal prescriptions and we fill them. But what a jury said back in November was that there is over dispensing here, that the pharmacies knew or should have known that there were just too many pills going out. And that's when the jury trial was. It was in November and they found these pharmacies liable. Now, it was in May that the judge and he has the responsibility for this to look at the amount of abatement fees. They are not damages. They are abatement fees because uh, this is a nuisance a public nuisance, that is the uh, opioid crisis in these counties. And he has to look at what was paid out already by the counties, the future, 15 years from now. So it's a very difficult monetary uh, determination he has to make. I want to show you what Walmart is saying here. Uh, They have spoken out now saying instead of addressing the real causes of the opioid crisis, like pill mill doctors, illegal drugs and regulators asleep at the switch, plaintiff's lawyers wrongly claimed that pharmacists must second guess doctors in a way that the law never intended. And many federal and state health regulators say interferences with the doctor-patient relationship. Now, this is part of the federal multi-district litigation started in 2018. It's cities, towns, municipalities, tribal nations. 3,000 cases is the first one involving pharmacies. Jane, how is this money, $650 million, how is it going to help the people hurt by this opioid crisis? Well, first of all, the court has an abatement fund where the monies are going to be an administrator, continuing jurisdiction. So the monies that go out will be very well documented. And it's really up to the counties. They have to pay back the agencies that have paid so much in the last years for opioid. They need to look at the future, develop new programs. I think it's sort of in its infancy right now. These uh, monies were just awarded yesterday. And so I think the future will tell that story. All right, Gene Casares, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, should masks still be required in schools? A simple question that still ignites a lot of debate. That's next. In the health lead, confusing patchwork mask and vaccine rules as a new school year begins, even after all we've learned since the early days of COVID. In Philadelphia, public school students must wear a mask for the first 10 days of the year, but pre-K students and staff must wear masks for the entire year. That's three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and five-year-olds, regardless of their vaccination status, regardless of community spread. In the suburbs around Washington, D.C., schools in Prince George's County, Maryland, are requiring face masks again. But at schools in Prince William County, Virginia, masks are mandatory only in pre-K Head Start classrooms. On the college level, Rutgers and Stanford are starting the semester with mask mandates in place. Let's bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, um, we noted the mask requirements for pre-K impacts three-year-olds and four-year-olds. These students tend to have the mildest symptoms. They can get vaccinated and they have their vaccines for them. 
I don't even understand why do three and four and five year olds, if they're vaccinated, need to need to wear masks all year? Well, th- this is interesting. Um, if, first of all, if you if you look at sort of the disparate guidelines or disparate recommendations around the country, a lot of it does have to do with how much the virus is spreading at any given place. If you look at community transmission around the United States, for example, you mentioned, first of all, the universities, Rutgers and Stanford. They both happen to be in areas where there is high community level right now, which means not only is there a lot of virus spreading, but there's also significant toll on hospitalizations in those areas as well. And that's part of the reason they go into masking. What is interesting, Jake, and I learned this today, uh, when, when it goes to three, four, and five-year-olds, uh, if you look at Philadelphia, for example, uh, closer to where you're from, you, and if you look at the community level there, you'll see there's different areas that are high versus medium versus low. Philadelphia is actually medium, so they shouldn't have uh, indoor masking requirements. There is a federal requirement, though, for Head Start programs specifically, children in the, that age range, three, four, five-year-olds, Head Start programs specifically, they that they are continuing to wear masks. That's a federal requirement. It's a requirement that has been challenged, you know, in several states around the country. But the thinking is that that is a population of people who tend to be more vulnerable, more likely to develop severe illness, less likely to be vaccinated, fewer resources. So I think that's why that federal requirement remains in place. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me. There's a vaccine there. If you want to require the vaccine, require the vaccine. But the masking is damaging psychologically, emotionally and educationally for these kids. I think that's part of the reason you've had so many people challenged that at this point. I will say, you know, the vaccine uptake uh, has been very low uh, in that age group overall and even lower among some of these vulnerable populations. So it's it's you're right that they are the least at risk, uh, you know, population overall because of their age. But this is a federal requirement. When you look at these school districts, not just in Philadelphia, but in other places around the country, Head Start programs are still requiring masking for the time being. That may change. As I said, it's being challenged, but that's the way it stands now. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up, 8 billion robocalls to Americans, and the FCC says just two people are the alleged masterminds behind all this annoyance and fraud. CNN's investigates the spam calls that have likely kept your phone ringing. Coming up. Welcome to the Lead Up, Jake Tapper. This hour, we have all gotten the phone calls like this one before. Hi there, this is Jessica calling in regards to your Volkswagen warranty. The warranty is up for renewal. Now, one scam responsible for more than 8 billion robocalls, stealing millions of dollars from unsuspecting Americans, is being shut down. Plus, world leaders warn this could be the next Chernobyl disaster, danger looming at the biggest nuclear power station in Europe as Russian forces continue to fire rockets and shells from the six nuclear reactors. And leading this hour, new developments, the judge setting in motion the possible release of a redacted version of the search affidavit, detailing the reasons behind the raid on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt said he plans to hear more from the Justice Department about how much of the document describing how and why they concluded this unprecedented search of a former president's home was necessary, how much of it should remain confidential. Judge Reinhardt said, quote, I'm not prepared to find that the affidavit should be fully sealed, unquote, based on the information he had now. 
But it's not just the affidavit. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us now. Sarah, the judge just unsealed several other documents related to the search. What did we learn from those documents? That's right, Jake. These are procedural documents related to the search of Mar-a-Lago, but they do give a little bit more specificity about the crimes that were under investigation. Things like the willful retention of national defense information, the concealment or removal of government records, and of course, obstruction of a federal investigation. But we are still waiting to see what, if anything, the judge is going to make public about that affidavit. An extraordinary legal battle playing out in Florida. I think the country depends on information. We want to know what's in there. Over what the public deserves to know about the search at Mar-a-Lago. A judge setting in motion today the possible release of a heavily redacted version of the affidavit, where the FBI laid out why they believe there is probable cause a crime was committed. I'm not prepared to find that the affidavit should be fully sealed, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt said, giving the Justice Department a week to propose redactions and explain why each piece of information should be kept secret. This comes after several news outlets, including CNN, asked the judge to unseal the affidavit that led to a search warrant resulting in FBI agents walking out of former President Donald Trump's home with boxes of classified material. It's a fishing expedition. The Justice Department opposing the release of details in the affidavit, echoing concerns from an earlier filing where DOJ said, if disclosed, the affidavit would serve as a roadmap to the government's ongoing investigation, providing specific details about its direction and likely course in a manner that is highly likely to compromise future investigative steps. The head of the Justice Department's counterintelligence section pointing out the court already found probable cause that evidence of obstruction could be found at Mar-a-Lago and that releasing the affidavit could chill cooperation from future witnesses. The government also raising concerns about the risks the FBI has faced in the wake of the Mar-a-Lago search. Despite the Justice Department's preference for secrecy, Much of our work is by necessity conducted out of the public eye. Federal law, long-standing department rules, and our ethical obligations prevent me from providing further details as to the basis of the search at this time. The judge still appeared inclined to make at least portions of the document available to the public. Trump, meantime, has been eager to learn why the FBI targeted his Mar-a-Lago estate. Posting in part this week, I call for the immediate release of the completely unredacted affidavit pertaining to this horrible and shocking break-in. This as Trump's inner circle is split on when and whether to release security camera footage of the search. Video recorded despite the FBI asking Trump's lawyers to turn the cameras off when they got there. You still have the surveillance tape, is that correct? Will you, are you allowed to share that with the country? Absolutely, Sean, at the right time. Some close to Trump say the video could energize the GOP base and appear in a campaign-style ad. But others worry raw footage showing agents removing more than a dozen boxes could further damage the former president. Now, after today's hearing, a Trump spokesman tweeted that the complete unredacted affidavit should be released to the public. But, Jake, this is not an argument the Trump team has made in court, at least not yet. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Also in our politics lead, former Trump organization CFO Alan Weisselberg pleaded pleaded guilty to his role in a 15-year-long tax fraud scheme that benefited both him and his employer, including pleading guilty to 15 felonies and admitting he failed to pay taxes on $1.7 million in income. The plea puts him at odds with the Trump Organization, which could face its own real estate tax trial in October. CNN's Kara Skinnell joins us now from outside the courthouse. And, and Kara, part of Weiselberg's guilty deal includes his agreement to testify against the Trump Organization at that possible trial. How significant could that be? 
Well, Jake, it's very significant. He can provide an insider's look into how these alleged crimes were committed. I mean, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg today calling this testimony invaluable. Weisberg has been with the Trump Organization for 40 years. Now, he's pleading guilty to the crimes that he committed, which were not paying income tax on certain corporate benefits he received, but he'll also be shedding a light on how this worked inside the Trump Organization. It's important to note he is not expected to implicate former President Donald Trump or any of his adult children. They have not been accused of any wrongdoing in this scheme. Weisberg is also not cooperating with the Manhattan District Attorney's ongoing investigation into the Trump Organization's finances. And in a sign of how committed both sides are to each other, the Trump Organization put out a statement today calling Weisselberg a fine and honorable man. And just to recap, he pleaded guilty to 15 felonies today. He's agreed to pay back more uh, about $2 million in back taxes, interest and penalties. Uh, and he is required to testify at that uh, trial coming up in October. And in exchange, prosecutors agreed that he would serve five months in jail. His lawyer says that could turn out to be about 100 days. Jake? And Kara, one of the, one of the items Weisselberg admitted to was that he did not pay taxes on some of the luxury perks he received. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so according to prosecutors and Weisselberg's own plea today in the courthouse behind me, Weisselberg received a corporate apartment that was paid for by the Trump Organization. They also paid for his utilities, his garage there, the leases on two Mercedes-Benz, as well as furniture that he used for that apartment and a home in Florida. And they also paid the private school tuition of two of Weisselberg's grandchildren. Jake? All right, Kara Scannell, thank you so much. Joining us to discuss former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. Preet, today uh, a federal judge in Florida is setting up uh, the possible release uh, of a redacted version of the affidavit that would detail the justification for why the judge allowed the FBI to search the president's uh, home at Mar-a-Lago. What might we learn from it, assuming that, that there are significant redactions? Well, I guess the answer depends on how significant those redactions are. If they're minimal and not particularly significant, we're going to learn a whole lot. Uh, remember, the affidavit is the thing that went before a federal judge to provide the basis for probable cause uh, to believe a crime was committed and there was evidence of the crime at the location. So you'd learn, uh, probably, the origin of the investigation, why they were concerned about it in the first place. You'd learn how much probable cause they have, and given the nature uh, of the of the premises being searched, uh, and the owner of those premises, um, what some people have called probable cause plus, was probably the case. So you'll learn uh, how many witnesses came before uh, the government uh, and provided evidence uh, that they thought that these uh, these documents and classified materials were still being held at Mar-a-Lago against the law and against policy and against norms. You'll find out how many there were, probably, depending on the, the level of redaction. Uh, and you'll find out who else is possibly under investigation. You know, search warrant affidavits sometimes are very, very lengthy uh, and, and provide you know, very significant narratives of all the things that the government is doing uh, because the government tends to rely on the idea that these things will not become public. That's the argument that the government is making to the court right now. Given how sensational the issue is, given the substantial public interest, I think the judge is taking a very, very careful look and would do something that's extraordinary uh, in releasing part or all of the affidavit. Several news organizations, including CNN, are asking the judge to unseal the affidavit because, without question, there is a public interest in knowing the justification behind the FBI conducting this search, which is unprecedented. The Justice Department argues there's a different public interest uh, in the judge not impeding this investigation. How does a judge weigh these two competing interests? 
you know, it's difficult. That's why being a judge is very hard. And what's interesting in, in this particular case is one of the competing interests against disclosure uh, is, is risk of harm uh, to, to people who would be identified. There has already been, apparently, uh, the threat of harm against the judge himself, uh, because there are a lot of people who are upset uh, about the authorization of a search uh, in, in the person who signed off on the, on the warrant. Um, there's also concern that uh, if you learn the identity of various investigating agents or cooperating witnesses or confidential informants, if, if those are being cited and recited in the, in the document, that harm may come to them. You know, I think the the strength of the law is on the side of the government. The strength of president is on the side of the government. What you have here is a series of extraordinary things that beget other extraordinary things. Now, it's extraordinary and unprecedented that the president of the United States, former president, uh, maintains secret files and classified documents against authorization and his residence. It then becomes uh, extraordinary and unprecedented for the government to seek a search warrant to go after the premises of a former president. And now here, maybe because of those two extraordinary things that happened back to back, a judge is considering yet a third extraordinary thing, which would be to release an unredacted or a, or a you know, significantly unredacted version of the affidavit. It's a, it's a tough call. I still think the weight of, of evidence and precedent is, is against release or full release of the affidavit. Turning to New York and the Weisselberg case, should Donald Trump be nervous that his CFO uh, of the Trump organization pleaded guilty? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, this has been speculation from the beginning. Spe- you know, and by the beginning, I mean uh, from the time that we learned publicly that Alan Weisselberg was under investigation. Remember, we knew about that uh, due to various reports and leaks before he was actually charged. And you know, the storyline is if you're looking at somebody who's high up in an organization, they may be able to flip and give evidence against someone higher up in the food chain, in this case, the former president, Donald Trump. He made clear that he was not prepared to do that during the investigation. Then they charged him presumably under the impression and with the hope that that would cause him to flip. He made clear he wasn't going to do that. And by all reports and from the plea proceeding today, it's clear that Alan Weisselberg uh, you know, has limited obligations to testify only against the organization uh, and is not implicating Trump. And nothing in, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the indictment against the organization or against Weisselberg makes much specific reference or indirect reference to Donald Trump either. So you know, there are other areas of concern for Donald Trump, maybe Georgia and elsewhere, but probably not with respect to Alan Weisselberg. There's also, uh, I mean, you, you note all the places that Donald Trump is facing uh, legal problems. You have Florida, you have Atlanta, Georgia, you have New York. Uh, there's also on Capitol Hill, uh, where the, the House is trying to get Donald Trump's uh, tax returns. And just this afternoon, the former president appealed the ruling that would have that greenlit the IRS releasing his tax returns to a House committee. Uh, he's been fighting, of course, to keep his tax returns private for years. Is that significant? You know, I don't know how significant it is. I, I think, you know, on its face, uh, Congress receiving uh, records of taxes, tax returns themselves and documents related to tax returns is significant because you don't see that. It's an unusual thing. But remember, there's a, there, was a, there is and was a Manhattan DA's investigation into Donald Trump and his finances that involved the subpoenaing and, and, the, um, and the seizure and receipt of Donald Trump's tax returns. It looks like that's not ending up with a criminal prosecution, whether the, the Congress gets those tax returns or not at the end of the day when all appeals are exhausted, you know, maybe they'll do a report, uh, maybe they'll have some kind of hearing in Congress, but there's no criminal liability to the extent the thing that Donald Trump has to be most worried about with all these legal fronts uh, is his personal liberty of being convicted of a crime. That doesn't really exist here. Pri Barara, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a Saudi woman is sentenced to prison for her tweets. What's even wilder, the jail time went way up 
after her appeal. Then the NFL goes beyond a judge's order and makes Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson pay up. The details on the punishment and the fine stay with us. In our national lead, a grand jury has indicted the man accused of stabbing award-winning author Salman Rushdie on stage in western New York. The 24-year-old suspect just made his first court appearance in a hearing that wrapped up a short while ago. He pleaded not guilty to attempted murder and assault charges. CNN's Shimon Prokopis joins us now live from New York. Shimon, what else happened in court today? Yeah, so Jake, the prosecutor's revealing this new indictment against Hadi Matar, the 24-year-old. He appeared there in court. And what we've learned is that there were two charges that the grand jury considered. One of them was attempted murder in the second degree uh, and then assault in the second degree. He's facing up to 25 years uh, in prison. This, of course, all comes after the attack uh, that prosecutors say Hadi Matar uh, stabbed Rush Salman Rushdie several times as he was preparing to give a lecture. But the big question here, Wolf, obviously remains um, the motive here. And this is something that investigators are still working through. Matar uh, is 24 years old. This uh, death threat that has existed over Salman Rushdie's head has been over 30 years now. Uh, what prompted this attack suddenly uh, in the day that it happened? That is something that investigators, along with the FBI, which has now joined this investigation, is still trying to figure out, Jake. Well, it, it seems obvious to me as a as a spectator. I mean, the Ayatollah Khomeini did a uh, issued a fatwa, a death sentence against Rushdie for for you know insulting uh, their his Islamist uh, sensibilities, and his life has been Salman Rushdie's life has been threatened ever since. Uh, Iran renewed the fatwa uh, just uh, before uh, this attack. Why are prosecutors having such a difficult time assessing the motive? Is he just not admitting it? Well, he's not been cooperative in the investigation. He's not spoken with. Uh, the uh, investigators there. But it's more involved because they need to go through some of his communications, his social media. The big thing that I've been told is that they want to see if anyone overseas, someone overseas was trying to influence him, trying to direct him to do this attack. There was planning that went into this. He had to find uh, Salman Rushdie where he was giving this lecture. uh, And so that took some level of planning. And so there is some belief perhaps that maybe someone uh, somewhere was helping him. But I don't know that investigators have been definitively been able to determine that. And also using their investigative techniques, I'm not sure that they're at a point right now that they would want to reveal that, Jake. All right, Shimon Prokopes, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Now for our buried lead, that's what we call stories we think are not getting the attention they deserve. This week, Saudi Arabia sentenced a woman to 34 years in prison for her activity on Twitter on behalf of women's rights. CNN's Jamana Karache is monitoring this story. She joins us now from Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, Tell us who this woman is and why she's been given such a harsh sentence. A really harsh and shocking sentence, even by uh, Saudi justice standards, Jake. Uh, Selma Ashihab is a 33-year-old women's rights campaigner, and she's not one of the well-known campaigners in the kingdom. Uh, She was also a PhD student at the uh, University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. She was detained in January of 2021 because of her Twitter um, activity, and uh, later on, uh, late last Last year, the specialized criminal court in the country sentenced her to six years in jail because of those tweets. Now, uh, as Shihab, uh, who is the mother of two young children, appealed that decision on the ground saying that she has two young boys who are three and five. Her mother is ill. She needs to be there for her boys. And this week, the Saudi court 
increased her sentence to 34 years, followed by another 34 years of a travel ban where she won't be able to leave the kingdom. Now, CNN was able to review the court documents, Jake, and it appears that the public prosecution brought this case against her, they say, because of tweets where they say she was spreading false information, she was spreading rumors, she was supporting people who they accuse of trying to destabilize the kingdom and undermine its security. But if you go through her Twitter account and you see the kind of people that she has been supporting over the past couple of years or so, uh, she was uh, defending human rights activists, uh, uh, dissidents and women's rights campaigners in the kingdom who were behind bars because of their activism and because of speaking out uh, for freedoms. The Saudis haven't said anything publicly about this case. We understand she will have the ability to appeal this sentence. But Jake, uh, human rights defenders in Saudi Arabia and beyond are saying that this is the kind of scenario they were warning about last month when President Biden made that visit to Saudi Arabia and that controversial meeting with the Saudi crown prince saying that this was only going to embolden MBS and Saudi authorities to continue this brutal crackdown on freedoms in the kingdom. Exactly. Right. Not just predictable, but predicted. Jamana Karachi in Istanbul, Turkey. Thank you so much. It could be worse than the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. The warning about ongoing fighting in and around Europe's largest nuclear power plant, which is inside Ukraine. Stay with us. Russia's continued slaughter of Ukrainian civilians tops our world lead. The death toll has risen to 12 in a Russian rocket attack on an apartment building in the northeastern city of Kharkiv. That's according to Ukrainian authorities who say all, all of the victims were civilians, many of them elderly and disabled. This comes, of course, as world leaders are expressing increasing alarm about ongoing Russian shelling around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Turkey's president warned today that the situation could result in, quote, a new Chernobyl. CNN Sam Kiley spoke with some of the residents who live around the plant under constant assault from Russian strikes. It's an all too routine scene, a Ukrainian home destroyed by a missile. But here the lucky escape of a young couple is overshadowed by a potential catastrophe. The first Russian rocket hit the local soccer pitch and sent them scrambling into their basement safe from the second. After what happened, we jump at every sound, Andrei says. The Ukrainian authorities say that both rockets were fired by Russian troops from the grounds of a nuclear power station captured in March. The international consternation over the future of the Enohada nuclear power station is very obvious when you stand here and you can see the six reactors of the biggest nuclear power station in the whole of Europe. The United Nations, the international community are all reacting in horror at the mere thought that this could be at the centre of fighting. Ukraine blames Russia for using the nuclear plant as a firebase and insists that it's not able to shoot back for risk of blowing up the nuclear facility. The Russian occupiers shoot all the time to provoke the armed forces of Ukraine and to spread panic among the people. We understand that the power plant may explode because of their actions. I just don't understand. Maybe they just don't get it, he told us. The United States, the United Nations and Ukraine have all called for Russia to leave the nuclear plant and for it to be demilitarized. 
These demands are growing in volume as the bombardment of Ukrainian towns, allegedly from around the six nuclear reactors, has intensified. Andriy Tuz worked at the plant until he escaped the Russians, but then he was recaptured, he says, and tortured before being released. Now he's in hiding in Western Europe. And he says the possibility of a disaster is very high. I would say 70 to 90 percent if we're talking about the most optimistic scenario. I'm very worried about it. And civilians in the Russian-occupied town next to the plant have been stuck in traffic jams, trying to flee a potential nuclear escalation. Ukraine's claims that it hasn't shelled the nuclear site cannot be verified. But there's no doubt that Russia has used it as a safe location to attack Ukraine from. Ukrainians have been conducting nuclear disaster drills in cities nearby. And both sides have said that some kind of incident is imminent and could cause massive radioactive contamination or a meltdown. A cataclysm that could be felt far beyond Ukraine, even in nearby Russia. Now, Jake, that is really the military picture, but there's also a technical issue here in, in potentially endangering that nuclear power plant, which is that Russian technicians have been brought in by Moscow to run it alongside Ukrainian technicians who are effectively hostages there, although many believe that they should be staying on in order to protect the facility. And there are also Russian plans, perhaps or they've announced plans, to shift its product of electricity to Crimea. Now, if they were to try to do that, a number of potential chain reactions could unfold. And it's one of those, uh, a breakdown in the cooling system, particularly for these reactors, that the technical uh, authorities are most worried about, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Thank you so much for that story. The campaign back and forth between Dr. Oz and Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is ripe for impact on the Pennsylvania Senate race, and it's already leading to some spoils for one candidate. Stay with us. And our politics lead, CNN, has learned that Donald Trump is weighing whether to release security camera footage that would show the search and seizure process at his Mar-a-Lago estate during the FBI raid, a, a move that critics say could theoretically endanger the security of the FBI agents who were doing their jobs conducting the approved search. The Trump team last week, we should note, provided to friendly MAGA media an unredacted copy of the warrant that listed the names of the FBI agents who conducted the search, thus putting targets of sort on their back. Let's discuss. Gloria, let me start with you. Some people close to Trump, Mm -hmm. our team reports, uh, are urging him to release the surveillance video, uh, even though obviously it would potentially uh, pose a risk to the agents. Uh, One person familiar with the discussions tells CNN that the footage could be used in campaign-style ads to bolster Trump's claims of political persecution. Maybe that's how MAGA would see it. I'm not sure about swing voters. I'm I'm not sure about how swing voters would see it. How many documents are there? What will they be going through? Um, do, you, do you really believe that these agents weren't behaving properly? And by the way, the early narrative, as we heard during all of this, was that the evidence had been planted. Well, if the evidence had been planted, wouldn't they be videotaping them planting the evidence? Right. So I don't think so. So this could, this could backfire, and I think that's why there's the back and forth about whether they ought to be doing it and also when they ought to be doing it. Right. Do they want to do it? after he announces for president and portray him as the victim? Who knows? And, and Rena, we should know um, this isn't just, I mean, this is being publicly discussed. Uh, right. discussed. Uh, uh, Trump's son Eric told Sean Hannity that the footage will absolutely be released at the right time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, what do you think? I mean, it's what they do, right? It's the victim mentality that Trump takes on, but showing the common man that if they're coming after me, they can come after you. That's the narrative all the time. And he has people in Congress pushing it forward. So why wouldn't they think it would work? They are taking this on their terms because they think it's going to help them all the way through November and beyond. There's nothing that tells us that the Republican Party won't win with this narrative, that they are the victims over and over, the Democrats are the demons, and that our institutions shouldn't be trusted. Because why should we trust them? They want nothing but Trump out of office. That's what Republicans win on over and over. What they haven't got right, Jake, is this frustration that Trump is distracting us from the bigger picture. And it's playing out in places like West Virginia, where I talked to a recent uh, young lawmaker from that state, because I'm from that state, and I have, con- I have these conversations with them. And they say, we're out there campaigning, and we knock dozens of doors, and we don't hear the name Trump very much. Mm. And I find that intriguing, because that tells you that there's an appetite for something else. People get frustrated after a while. They don't want this shoved down their throats this way. And the Trump universe, Magalan, doesn't see that coming. I think that'll be the real shock. And let's turn to the, the Senate, because Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said something interesting. Uh, he said that he predicted the midterm elections uh, will turn uh, will results uh, an extremely close majority in the Senate. Uh, and he said that it's possible the Republicans will not even recapture the Senate. I've never really heard Mitch McConnell no. say anything like that before. He said that explain, he said candidate quality has a lot to do with that. Yeah, listen, in talking to Republicans and Democrats over the last uh, days or so, Democrats now cautiously optimistic in a way that they weren't uh, <coughs> on to uh, the Senate. And Republicans worried a, a bit. Mitch McConnell reflecting that because of the candidates, the Trump-backed candidates who have emerged in some of these states, states like Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, sorry, Ohio, (laughs) uh, Arizona, and Georgia, you know, and they're worried that these are sort of first-time candidates going up against much more uh, experienced candidates. Some of, you know, the rhetoric might work in smaller sort of house races, but when you try to take sort of MAGAism and Trumpism uh, to a state like uh, Arizona or, or Georgia, it might be a bit more difficult. So that is the kind of worry uh, that Mitch McConnell is talking about privately. I mean, it's sort of Trump fatigue uh, coming home to roost and, and Mitch McConnell worried about what that may mean in the Senate races. And Paul, you're from Texas, but you made your bones in, in the Commonwealth. <laughs> in, your, in your Commonwealth. In the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, working on the Harris-Wafford race in, what was that, 1991? Yeah. Mm. 1991s. Um, and, Before and, some on this panel were born, I might <laughs> and the, the and, and uh, your partner at the time, James Carville, I believe it was him, maybe it was mm-hmm. you, who said, you have Philadelphia, you have Pittsburgh, and in between you have Alabama. It's a deceptive state. Yeah. Um, the Cook Political Report is shifting their outlook for the open Senate race. This is a retiring Republican Senator Pat Toomey's seat. Uh, from toss-up to lean Democrat. Um, this is coming in the wake of a video showing Republican nominee Dr. Oz, Dr. Mehmet Oz, shopping for crudite, which I <laughs> must confess uh, I had to look up. Uh, we call it a bit, normally we call it a veggie plate, in, in Philly at least. Uh, and it went viral. He also confused the names of two separate Pennsylvania uh, grocery chains. I uh, called it like Wagner's or something right. like that. Wagner's um, and Wegmans. Yeah. Combined. Uh, yeah. People make mistakes. But in any case, uh, the, the Fetterman campaign made a big deal out of it. Take a listen to how Dr. Oz explained the blunder. I was exhausted <laughs> when you're campaigning 18 hours a day. You've, listen, I've gotten my kids' names wrong as well. I don't think that's uh, a measure of someone's ability to lead the Commonwealth. I mean, he has a point, but I should note, this is a video that he put out. So, like, I wonder about the staffing he has around him. The fire is yeah. running. You grew up there. He's running in a commonwealth where people actually work, where there are firefighters, school teachers, 
bus drivers, still some steel workers, God bless them. Yeah. And really, they're going to say, oh, this TV doc was too tired? The, the, the problem he's got is authenticity. It's the strength that, that Fetterman has, lieutenant governor, the Democrat, and the weakness that he has is that, that, that he is looking more and more like a phony, uh, somebody you can't trust. And by the way, I checked in with the Fetterman campaign. They've raised $600,000 off of the crudite. Which is old, uh, which is from April, right? It's just, like an old video. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're killing him on this. Can I just really? say, it's early. Okay, there are yeah. 80 yeah. days. Yeah. Yep. There are 80 days, and you know how candidates try to paint caricatures of their opponents. So we have the caricature. But in the end, are people going to say, well, I'm feeling a little better about the economy. I'm feeling a little better about gas prices. And that will that do more for Fetterman than, you know, crudite? Um, yeah. who know, you know, who knows at this point? I but Rena, to, to be fair, we need to point out also, obviously, uh, John Fetterman, who we all hope for the best when it comes to his health. He had a stroke right before right. the primary. Uh, and, you know, three months later, there are still questions about how he's doing. Uh, he hasn't really subjected himself to the kind of vigorous interviews uh, that other, not that Dr. Oz is either, I should know, but like, yeah. there's still questions about where he is in the recovery process. Um, so, I mean, it is early and that also is an issue. Well, I think it's easy to be in the Washington bubble and just think that we are subject and, and we need to know all that information. He's a real guy. Authenticity being the name of the game. And one thing I love about Fetterman, he's steady on the drumbeat. I mean, this criticism of Oz has been brilliant in every way. If you've seen the stuff he puts out on they social, it is just so good. And his wife coming out during the time that he was sick and disposed, I, mean, I think it really serves him well in Pennsylvania. I know Pittsburgh quite well. I, grew, I went to school not too far from there for four years. And I tell you, I think people can see this guy and see him for what he is. He's, he's a real leader and he's that sort of strong, tough that they want out there. And I think that's going to serve him well when he's up against Oz, who doesn't look but so don't tough you think, sometimes. Do you, don't you think he's going to have to do debates and all that? Yeah, he will. Yes. I think he will. He will. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. Talk is cheap, except for robocalls. The government now cracking down on one of the largest robocall scams ever. How you can avoid being scammed in the future. How your mom and dad can avoid more pointedly. In our national lead, is that your phone ringing? Someone's been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. You've probably heard robocalls like that because similar calls were made more than 8 billion times, scamming Americans out of millions of dollars. Now it looks as though officials are close to shutting down one sophisticated illegal robocall operation. CNN's Gabe Cohen investigates how state and federal officials are teaming up to dial in the scammers. Hi there, this is Jessica calling in regards to your Volkswagen warranty. Odds are you've received a bogus auto warranty call similar to this. The warranty is up for renewal. Now authorities are cracking down on a scheme an FCC official calls the most sophisticated illegal robocall operation they've ever seen. More than 8 billion spam calls to Americans. And a new lawsuit claims two California men are behind nearly all of it. Aaron Michael Jones and Roy Cox Jr. are accused of violating telemarketing laws by tricking Americans into buying vehicle service contracts and making millions of dollars off the scam. CNN tried to track them down. Dozens of calls, texts and emails, but no response. Both Cox and Jones have been sued by the Federal Trade Commission in the past and ordered never to telemarket again. And yet, like many robocall scammers, they're accused of just retooling their operation. We're coming in to try to take them down. 
So now, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost is suing Cox, Jones, and their associates, potentially for millions of dollars. It's enough to take back everything they've made. If a slap on the wrist doesn't work, punch him in the face and knock him down. Did you consider criminal charges here? Criminal charges are not off the table. Yost is part of a new anti-robocall task force. Attorneys general from nearly every state working with federal officials to ramp up illegal robocall enforcement. In 2021, Americans received an estimated 21 billion scam robocalls, costing them nearly $40 billion in a 12-month period. It's usually very hard to find the callers. All of these unwanted robocalls are undermining the value of our telephone system. Most of the calls come from overseas, and tracing them is a fairly new technology. So up to now, authorities have struggled to stop them. And the callers that do get caught often go right back to scamming, according to an FCC official. So authorities are turning attention to the gateway providers, the telecom companies that let those robocalls onto the U.S. phone network. Specifically, those that we believe may be turning a blind eye to these kind of calling scams. When a call comes from overseas, typically several small carriers get paid to pass it along before it reaches your cell. Investigators are using a technique called tracebacks to identify the original source of these illegal calls. Then agencies like the FCC can order the rest of the industry to stop doing business with those carriers. If there are not this tier of providers who are willing to take this bad traffic, then the robocallers will find themselves with nowhere to place their calls. That's the case with the auto warranty scam. In July, the FCC ordered all telecom companies to block all robocalls from Cox, Jones, and eight voice service providers they say are linked to the scheme. Since then, those calls have nearly vanished, according to a robocall analysis company. Do you think you can really stop these scammers? I think we can significantly decrease it. How long will that take? Uh, Years, not months. It's an arms race between the enforcers and the criminals. Uh, But we're getting smarter and we're on to their ways. Now, data show illegal robocalls are trending downward, though now tech schemes are on the rise. But look, this Ohio case is a good example of the added attention that robocalls are getting from authorities. And in this case, the calls are down to nearly zero. So, Jake, it looks like that enforcement strategy is working, although consumer advocates say much more needs to be done, especially with telemarketing laws. All right, Gabe, thanks so much. Excellent work as always. Let's bring in Alex Qualici. He's the CEO of umail.com. That's a software company, a private company that helps protect consumers and companies against harmful calls like these. Uh, Alex, not only are these robocalls annoying, they can be really harmful. Besides never answering an unknown number ever again, how does one avoid falling victim to these scams? Well, there's a couple of things that people can do. The first is there are now robocall blocking apps you can get for your cell phone. Our company, Umail, has one, but there are others. These apps tend to filter out lots of those calls so you don't have to. So that's number one. Number two is, as you said, don't answer calls from unknown numbers. Uh, Let them roll to voicemail. And number three is do your homework before calling a number back. If it claims to be Citibank, don't trust that it's Citibank. Go to the Citibank website get their phone number, and call that number to see if they were calling. 
Do you think the state attorney's general's plan to go after telecom carriers, you heard Attorney General Yost from Ohio there, do you think it will, will work? I think it's going to make a big difference. There's plenty of examples of like illegal calling activity. In fact, our company collects a lot of that and gives it to the attorneys general and others to help them. So there's enough evidence of what's going on to make good cases. With traceback, you can find out who's doing it. And with enough enforcement, you can really shut both the, the robocallers and the carriers that support them down. Sometimes I'll get a call. Uh, I assume it's a, a robocall, but I don't know. I'll answer it, and then they'll just hang up. But it's, it's definitely a robocall. It's like from an 888 number. What is that? Is that someone just trying to figure out if it's a real number or something? Usually that's saying that their robocall campaign is having more people answer than they can handle. So the, they're hanging up on some people because there's just nobody to transfer them to. Hmm. As we heard in Gabe's reporting, obviously these scams are getting more and more sophisticated. And, and seniors, uh, for whom this technology uh, might be new and maybe they just have an inherent trust in the good, in the good nature of man, uh, they seem especially susceptible to some of these scams. Uh, what can be done to protect them? So interestingly enough, the car warranty scam hit everybody because everybody has a car and everybody's interested in lowering maintenance costs. But for things like Medicare and other things, you're right. Seniors are a big target. Uh, There's a couple things to do. One is to actually educate seniors that they can no longer trust the phone network, that it's really up to them to never give information to anybody who calls them and always be the person calling, always call the bank themselves before they give information out. You can also go and help them put a robocall blocking app on their phone. We know lots of people who put it on their parents' phone, and it's helped a great deal. That's a good idea. I might have to do that. Robotexts are also becoming more of a threat. How can you avoid or stop those? So there are actually apps that block robotexts. We do some. There are other apps out there. I think the biggest thing is to just have a very suspicious mindset. It's unlikely you really won the lottery. It's unlikely there's a free car waiting for you. It's unlikely that Medicare is texting you to figure out what's going on with your account. So keep a very suspicious mind and ignore anything that's not from somebody you know. All right, Alex Quilici, thank you so much for your time. What is $5 million when you've got a guaranteed $230 million contract? The Cleveland Browns' Deshaun Watson is about to find out. Our sports lead now, the National Football League today not quite doubled the suspension for Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson, whom more than two dozen women accuse of sexual misconduct during massage treatments. Watson will now be suspended without pay for the first 11 games of the football season instead of merely the first six games. He also has to pay a $5 million fine and be evaluated and treated by behavioral experts. You can decide whether his response today was appropriately contrite. I'm moving on with my career and my life, and I'm continuing to stand on my innocence. Just because, you know, settlements and things like that happen doesn't mean that a person is is guilty for anything. An NFL statement said Watson's fine, along with contributions from the league and the Browns, will create a $7 million fund for organizations that educate young people on healthy relationships and prevent sexual misconduct. I think they expect us to stand up and cheer now for that, but it's your call on that too. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of a show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcast. It's two hours, just sitting there like a ripe peach. 
Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. Right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.